Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. It's awesome to speak with you uh, today. There's so many cool things that we're excited to speak to you about, about your career that spans continents and, and industries and, and companies of different sizes. Let us start a little bit just going back to the beginning, whenever that happened to be, around when you became more aware of the global world around you and that there was more to life than what was in your backyard. Well, that's good. I mean, that kind of drives a little bit of a, you know, you're not your typical bio answer. But so growing up, my mom had spent a lot of time in her 20s in West Africa, in Ghana in particular. And then in the formative years, sort of the teenage years, she ended up working, I'm Canadian, and she was on the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada. And so dinner table conversations, as you can imagine, were really a lot focused on kind of crossing imaginary borders in my mind from a young age. And I think that combined with also being Canadian and and realizing from an early age that it's an incredible country and I'm so proud to be from, but you're not a world superpower. And so a lot of the people I grew up with was kind of like, when do we get to kind of move and leave and, and see the rest of the world? And so it just drove this really early on global mindset. So I'll often say like, I'm Canadian, but a global citizen. And I think sort of what I've done since has definitely followed that thread. You had made just one reference right there that I thought was interesting. You talked about crossing imaginary borders. What did you mean by that? Well, just in my mind, like the storytelling is so powerful. And, you know, she would come home and some of them are really tough stories too. And she could only share certain specifics about the refugee situation, but she would literally sit on a panel with people deciding ultimately which refugees should come into Canada or not. And so it just woke me up to just like where people can be from, what was happening in the broader context of the world. I have an aunt as well, who, when I was younger, worked for the United Nations and she worked all over the world, but she worked in Indonesia in particular. And we would go up to the cottage and this sort of deep firsthand knowledge that she had of markets, really frontline firsthand knowledge. And and there were some really interesting cottage debates. I remember, and I just wanted to be a part of them. I remember thinking like, I want to know it that way too. And so in my mind, I would kind of be doing a lot of that thinking and thinking about what it would be like to live there and sort of getting every bit of information or pictures that I could. And so I think, you know, when that happens early on, you sort of know when the opportunity presents itself, you're always going to say yes to going and international. When did you actually have the first international experience where you went to another country and experienced <laughs> that firsthand? And this was a funny one because it also drove through that thread of like, I think I'm hardwired a little differently. It was either grade seven, eight or nine. I was trying to remember back. I'd have to ask my mom where I did the first outside of North America immersion exchange program to Lyon, France uh, with some classmates. And the first weekend you get there, you go into the immersive experience with your family. You know, you don't get to see your classmates over the weekend. And then you all come back to the schoolyard on Monday morning together. And everybody else from my class back home was miserable. And they were complaining and there was so much anxiety. And I felt completely differently. I had loved the experience. I felt like so lucky to just experience a different culture. And everything I'd taken in positive and negative, I mean, they knew there were just so many funny stories from that weekend. And I think. In that moment, I kind of realized, okay, so so this is a little different the way that other people are taking in the way that I am. I feel like it formed some part of my identity at that point, that this is something I want to do. This is something I can be proud of that I'm different, that I'm a bit different than others. Having that immersive experience, being close to the family is very, very unique. And most people actually get sort of in touch with culture a little bit more at the surface, going there to travel, just living there in a very brief stint, but really being there... uh, in a little bit longer time and a little bit more intimately really teaches you a lot as a human being. And so totally, you're right. It shapes you as a person and shapes also your worldview 
I wanted to ask you a little bit of a question and how that experience then led you to make the decision that you made going into sort of your career. You've had a lot of different experiences being at Unilever as a brand manager, then transitioned into Acumen Fund, which was a fellowship in India, and then moving on to obviously Endeavor later. Can you talk a little bit more about those transitions in your career? Absolutely. It's funny because I'm such a head over heart person in almost all other aspects. But when it comes to my career and looking back, like a lot of the decisions were gut-based. And I was lucky early on because I had my undergraduate had a co-op program. And so you got to do three work terms. And more than showing you what you want to do, it helped show me what I didn't want to do early on. And so like the first one was with oil and gas company out of Aberdeen, Scotland, which was purely because I wanted to travel to, to Scotland. Second was with Microsoft when they were launching the Xbox. And then the third one was with Unilever, which was really the only place I could see myself working. And the people were phenomenal. And I still say it was the best training ground. I don't think I could have done what I did with Acumen and now be where I am with Endeavor if I hadn't had that exposure to multiple sides of the business. Incredible training ground. And so from there, about five, six years in, I kind of realized, look, this is the learning curve is plateaued. And so like all good people, when you don't understand what you want to do next in your career, I went back to school. I fell in love with this course that was novel at the time at an MBA called Competitive Strategies for a Sustainable World. It was Dr. Sanjay Sharma, now he's Dean Sharma. And it was Stu Hart was writing Capitalism at a Crossroads and CK Pralahad was writing about the fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. And I just fell in love with this space. It was a real aha moment for me. And I wanted to move my career in that direction, but couldn't kind of figure out how, didn't necessarily want to be working kind of for Hindustan Lever, like still doing brand management, but just in a different market. And so I found Acumen, the fellowship. And Acumen is a social venture capital fund working in emerging markets. And so I was really lucky to get that fellowship. And so I was seconded from Unilever for this year in Mumbai, working for one of their healthcare investments, which was an ambulance service model. An incredible year, you know, fraught with challenges. And then the personal growth that ultimately comes, comes from that. And then at the very tail end of that, I was talking to Endeavor's co-founder, Linda Rotenberg in Mumbai. I remember this conversation and just this kind of insurgent mission that she was talking about, the way she spoke about Endeavor really resonated with me. This idea that we can talk about social entrepreneurs, but all entrepreneurs are inherently social because of what they build when they become successful right. and they scale up and then they multiply their influence and their impact. And it just made so much sense to me because I was dealing with a lot of companies that while they had incredible potential, it felt like because they were, they were almost stuck in this, like we're social first versus scale. And that just resonated. I think it was like pulling that thread through of like, look, I was business first. I was an MBA and an undergrad in business. And so I understood scale inherently. So I moved to New York to work for Endeavor to join the growing expansion team. And she realized like a month in that I spoke French. So she said, you know, you can launch Lebanon. So the training wheels came off really fast. So I was glad for the Unilever experience early on. And that was market number 11, Lebanon. And now we just launched the 40th market in Pakistan. So it has been quite the journey. Well, it sounds like you're a true believer in that entrepreneurship is a, is a way to also change the economy as well and give, obviously, entrepreneurs that may not have the same opportunities, the tools to be successful, right? Because not everyone has to, the level of access that some lower, at least in the, in the lower part of the, in the pyramid, they do often not have the same level of access to, to become successful, right? So it's really important to kind of, as endeavor to come in early on and, and support them in, in developing the, those skill sets to be entrepreneurs. And so when transitioning to Endeavor, how do you think your work to sort of put that organization on the trajectory to support 
developing markets. Was that already something that they had decided on to, to really exclusively focus on emerging markets and not mature markets? Because you see other accelerators out there that tend to be a bit more focused on developed economies, but Endeavor seems to be an organization that sort of very early on said, hey, we want to contribute to economic impact in emerging markets. So did mm-hmm. your work early on really influence that trajectory? When I joined Endeavor, that was already built into this incredible mission that it would be about emerging markets, but that was where the opportunity was. And even beyond that, I'll say there's been somewhat of a conscious choice to not go to maybe the most obvious, like we're not in China and we're not in India and to go to places where, you know, we wanted more fast growing entrepreneurs that really could remake their communities and their ecosystems over time to take root. And we really believed, and we'd seen that in Latin America, that was before I joined and believe that could happen in the Middle East and North Africa and Southeast Asia, that, that other parts of the world were seeing um, Sub-Saharan Africa seeds of this and how could we be a part of that and help accelerate it. I would say we made a conscious choice to kind of go to markets that, that were big enough. And so we looked at a lot of the macroeconomic factors and then followed a network effect, which has a lot to do with where we had existing footprint and who would kind of pull us in. We know that was important to kind of gain trust quickly. And also that sort of thread through culture piece that comes if you're able to do that well. When I think it was maybe like five, six years in, anyway, we, we made a conscious choice to take actually emerging markets out of the mission statement. At some point, the mission has stayed rough, like really the same in the 25 years that Endeavor has been around. But the, this idea that it's just emerging markets, we ended up shifting it to kind of emerging and underserved. And so it could encompass places like Ireland and Canada and even parts of the United States where entrepreneurs don't have the same access to capital and sort of that pure scale-up journey, mentors and connectivity and capital as they would in like the Bay Area or New York City or even Boston, if you think about it for the US example. And so that's kind of shifted. And so I've been a part of that journey of building out different parts of the world and kind of seeing those network effects take shape in Southeast Asia. I mean, you launch Indonesia and then it's easier to launch Malaysia and the Philippines. And I would just say it takes time. Like we consciously go into markets early that we are betting on and believe in strongly, maybe before a venture capitalist would come in or before a more traditional incubator or accelerator would come in. And it may not be the most obvious choice where like your Bay Area entrepreneur is thinking about expanding to. But I think, and I, I also think this is shifting though, like really, whether it's the pandemic that's done it or, and I can talk about a stat that I really like, but I think we're seeing that shift. But, you know, we've consciously gone into places early, like Brazil and Indonesia Turkey, we were there really early, I mean, 15, 16 years ago, and have had some of our great success stories, unicorns, decacorns from these markets. This is a great point. And this is something that Klaus and I have found in, in our research around how we've seen the pandemic as a pivot point for business. And, and uh, we make the analogy back to the dot-com boom and the internet coming out and how companies thought differently before versus after and companies born after were structured very differently. And, and those that took advantage of the power of the internet are the ones that one out in a lot of industries. We think the the parallel during the pandemic is one, the acceleration of distributed work and companies that are able to have, you know, manage and, and take advantage of distributed organizations. But the other part is, is that transition from the companies that understand that there are tons of markets across the world that aren't just sources of inexpensive labor, but actually are economies that they could be selling and developing customer bases in. And so I think just in, endeavors growth built in in your DNA shows that you understand that. And I think as we go, more companies will understand that better as well. The analogy maybe being, you know, nowadays, the idea of a company having a website, like it would be absurd not to, everybody has a website, but 
during the dot-com boom, a lot of companies didn't, you know, in the same way that now it's like the, the idea of a company being across the world and not just, you know, focusing on one market is obviously, you know, everyone, everyone's going to be global. Of course, you know, we, we probably look more like that in a few years. I was also taken a little back by, not taken back, but, but just uh, reminiscent of my experience. I worked at AT&T for quite a while. And you talked about Unilever being a training ground, which I, I saw AT&T as a great training ground. But to your point, the, you talked about the learning curve and, and things having plateaued. And, and I saw that in my career as well. I, I worked there for almost a decade. And we got to a certain point where I had a lot of great experience, but then being able to pivot to actually have impact in any way because of the bureaucracy of things, it became very difficult. Would, would you say that was part of your experience as well? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, and I have like my best bosses at Unilever, one of the best mentors I've ever had. I got to work with the biggest customer in Canada. I mean, there were so many positives. And again, I really believe that if you need that experience early on at a bigger organization like that to understand. And I, I mean, I moved from like the customer development group and sales and marketing and supply chain. I mean, they really move the young people all around, which is so smart of them. But I remember working on a launch and like blood, sweat and tears and grit for like a year, this incredible, it was going to be like a shot, like a fruit and vegetable shot, like a drink in our food beverage line and, uh, you know, market research and consumer obsession. And we'd figured out where we were going to place it in the store shelves and how we were going to market it. And then it just got cut because it was a bad year and the budgets are down and, and it was driven from the top, top. So like Canada's team is very supportive, even North America's team, but, you know, it's obviously a global company. And the, I think the decision came from London or Rotterdam and, you know, and it was done and it was put on the shelf. I'm one of these people that I, you know, I took it quite personally. And so that, that I think was sort of the start for me of like, I need to work, be closer to the work. Like being in a large organization is wonderful and it, it's great, especially I think at the beginning of your career, but now I, I want to be closer to it. I want to own it more. I'm having flashbacks. I, when I was at at and we'd been doing this education go-to-market, a, a tablet solution with, with um, education software on it for K through 12. I had been charged with building an ecosystem of partners and I had 12 signed LOIs. And 22 months later, after signing these LOIs, we hadn't even finished negotiating the contract for the first one. And it just took forever. And then, you know, to the point of things getting shelved. Before digging a little bit more into to Endeavor and, and some of your career experiences, one last thing that more, more just about your background that I'd love to touch on real quick is just the the Canadian piece of things. And to the point that you were, you were making a little bit, and it's a point we make too, is depending on where you're from, you think of international and global very differently. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're from a very large market like US or like Brazil, you often are thinking much later in the process because of how large the initial market is. Canada is an interesting one also because not only is it a bit smaller, often companies realize it's not the initial market you really want to scale in. We've spoken to executives from Slack in the past who were there early on, and they found that their initial market was more the United States versus Canada where they were born. But, but Canada is also interesting because of similarity of culture and language. And otherwise, you get kind of unjustifiably lumped in with the US and people assuming, oh, it's you know, the same. But there's obviously very distinct things around the mindset. We'd love just to touch a little bit on, on that, being from Canada and how it is different than the U.S. and, and uh, you know, maybe a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't want to get myself into trouble, but it's it's interesting because I, I mean, I married in America and I live in, in, in the United States in New York and, and my kids are dual citizens, as I was actually. So my dad grew up in just in Michigan, so just outside Detroit. And so I really had that sort of, I didn't feel it as much growing up though, because I really grew up in Canada. And while we do some Christmases over there, 
all my experiences up until really acumen fund and going to India were, were Canadian ones predominantly. And so I think I found it a little bit surprising that there is a cultural difference between, I talk about this a lot with some Canadian friends of mine who have also ended up in, in roles across the United States, that there is a cultural difference between two markets that should be very similar. And also this like wake up call that I realized that like as special as I thought Canada was being Canadian, and I've connected with other Canadians around the world who kind of feel similarly, like Americans don't care that much about Canada as we do, obviously. But I think that was sort of a wake up call to me. I'm like, but, but we're so unique in this way that immigration is driving so much of our growth and there people of, you know, and we don't have the same challenges around some of the things that the United States has and our government is run and we are able to do things faster. And it just is like, we're brilliant and wonderful and nature first and climate focused. And it's kind of like not really something that a lot of people I spoke to here, my husband in particular, I mean, it's just sort of like, okay. And so I think that was just realizing that there is these cultural differences. It may not be fully fully something that like people in America kind of understand and, and maybe nor should they, but it was just a funny kind of wake up call realizing that. And I think, you know, Canada is, is unique and we've launched Endeavor in Canada. That was, I think I got to launch enough countries that the founder finally said to me, okay, you can launch Endeavor in Canada in your home market. And it's been really interesting talking to you. I mean, you mentioned the, the Slack example, talking to Canadian founders about how they can build it thinking about the U.S. market, thinking about the global market from day one, but build it and keep it in Canada. I mean, Shopify is the quintessential example of that. And I guess we're in BlackBerry before, but I'm hoping that through our work with Endeavor Canada, we can see more of these success stories that choose to maintain. I mean, again, you'll have remote first and you'll have offices all over the world, but choose to maintain kind of the founders and, and, and the main DNA, if you will, back home where they founded it in Canada. What are some of the main challenges you then see from Canadian founders scaling internationally? I know you're not exclusively focused on that market, but do you see any specific challenges for the for, for companies, you know, looks to expand from Canada and out uh, or I know? I mean, we're just starting to work with some of them. I think they're the founders directly like through Endeavor because we've just started that work of selecting. We have a very rigorous selection versus Endeavor and then end up servicing them. I think that actually I counter, I would say that the challenge of capital, I mean, we're going into a very challenging capital raising environment over the next year, I think for founders in general. But actually, you know, there are a lot of, and maybe not like coast to coast in Canada, but there were a lot of venture capitalists, you know, more interested in, in Canada, certainly homegrown ones, but also I would say United States and, and comfortable with, I mean, I think Shopify paves the way for things like that, that when you intentionally say, and there's great podcasts that Toby Luke has done in the past, we're talking about how they really did push him. And there were opportunities when he was raising early on to move the company. And he intentionally didn't. And I think you kind of have to almost dig your heels in a little bit there. I think that was the right decision for Shopify. I hope he still feels that way. But so much of what that drives then, because if you have a successful company like that, all of a sudden investors and, and talent can stay, you know, it becomes easier. But it's not across Canada evenly. And I would say that talent, I think, is still probably something that founders would say is a little bit of an issue, especially as you try to grow and really have talent that has seen scale before. But the remote first may help us there. So, you know, then you can think through, look, I don't necessarily have to hire, you know, from Canada. And then Canada's got a good edge, I think, against the United States because we do have more favorable immigration policy. So it's more easy to bring tech talent in particular. I want to look uh, more on the expansion topic through the perspective of Endeavor. Right, because you guys operate in so many different markets, but at the same time also work with governments very intimately, right? When we say when we talk about expansion, we say that companies need to, you know, look at the expansion through two filters: government and regulation and culture and how that impacts the business model, right? 
And so I'm curious to learn a little bit more about how Endeavor sort of, you know, has to change and adapt a little bit when you go internationally. In what areas of the business you often have to change? Is it like from a, you know, how does government regulation affect partnerships? What about the, the business culture in terms of how you interact with customers, et cetera, et cetera? What are some of the areas in the business model that you need to change often when you go internationally? And how does yeah, and it's interesting. Actually, we don't work with government very oh, often. Yeah. It's actually intentional. We, you know, we often say we work exclusively with the private sector. And ideally, when we set up kind of our early partners mm. and governing bodies, it's mm. you know okay. successful business leaders in the country, which ideally is successful founders. That doesn't always exist, but we're hoping to then create it if it doesn't. But so we work almost exclusively through the private sector and, and sort of your major families and foundations, venture capital firms if they exist. And so one thing that's maybe unique about Endeavor's business model that I think works is we have a very decentralized approach. So all of the 40 markets around the world are their own office, legal setup, governing board of directors, budget, team, and they run, while they get the playbooks, they run the model locally. And we then, the way that we keep kind of the threads is we centralize certain aspects that, that really benefit. I mean, think about servant leadership that really benefit all of these 40 offices around the world. So Endeavor Global, which while we have offices, a small office in Singapore, the Bay Area and New York, so we're predominantly American-based Endeavor Global, but really kind of operating as a global organization first. So we think about ourselves. And if you look at our team in New York City, not that many people are in the office these days, but when you do go in, I mean, it's people from all over. And so the centralized aspects of the model are the end of our, our selection process. So everybody that becomes an Endeavor entrepreneur has to pass through this Endeavor global selection process. We centralize uh, sort of the, the servicing of our top, top, top founders. We centralize the access to capital piece. So really providing them with warm introductions to venture capitalists and the tech stack, you know, and so really some of the back end of how they do what they do. But I think that like decentralized, centralized has driven a really interesting. So some things are core. And then some things are really able to be adapted locally. And I think that drives that ownership mentality too, which all of our offices have. And then the, the entrepreneurs that we end up selecting ultimately join those boards over time and take over the running of the office and have in many markets around the world. And so once we open Endeavor office, it kind of exists into perpetuity, but it just ends up being run by the very entrepreneurs that we supported early on. That's pretty cool to dig into a little bit. And one thing we talk about is is this pendulum that often occurs as companies are growing between what is centralized, regionalized, localized. Was that sort of born in its current form or was there a bit of a pendulum swinging back and forth where different aspects that maybe now are centralized used to not be centralized or things that are now you know localized used to be centralized previously? Can you explain a little bit of that growth journey? You know, a lot hasn't changed. I wouldn't say we're inflexible or a really dynamic organization, but this idea that the ultimate way you become an Endeavor entrepreneur has to kind of keep the bar high around the world and not to be elitist about it at all, but to be really driving the, the same international conversations about founders so that we keep the network really strong. So that's always been the case. I think it's how we do it has had to shift because, you know, we have more markets and and ultimately more companies coming through. The servicing aspect is maybe something that's shifted. We used to do a lot of that locally. So the local teams would own it. And I think what we realized, and maybe it's also because after 25 years, we have so many incredible founders in the network, they really do increasingly want to connect with each other. I think earlier it was more connecting with our mentors or our board members, which of course they still want access to, but it's now increasingly peer-to-peer -peer connections. 
And so the, the servicing has maybe moved a little bit less from, from the local level to the global level, where like we take the top you know, 10% of our entrepreneurs around the world and, and they have a particular program called Endeavor Outliers that they get to be a part of. So, so some things in terms of that pendulum you talk about have shifted to become maybe a bit more centralized when we realized we had a real role to play, but they were always driven by the entrepreneurs and or the offices. So it was usually like something great that one office had been doing that we wanted to be able to build out across all 40 and that needed to be a global role or because the entrepreneurs were asking for it. And so trying to really start at that grassroots or granular level first, as opposed to like global top-down deciding what needs to be more centralized. And this, this is a great point that we think is the hallmark of global class organizations as, as our designation talks about is, is the idea of this two-way innovation. It's not just a command and control from one headquarters saying, this is how we're innovating and this is what we're doing, but building the mechanisms, as you just said, to find best practices in any of those 40 markets, and then being able to implement those in all or a subset of the markets is uh, really important. I'd love to talk a little bit more about North Africa. So we've definitely had business leaders, entrepreneurs from Africa on our uh, our podcast, and but they've been through Western, Eastern Africa. North Africa is very different. I, often even in conversations with them and, and other parts of our research, there's reference to the continent in Africa. And obviously it's you know, 54 countries, not one homogeneous place by any means. But when you look at South Africa, very different than a lot of West Africa, very different than North Africa and, and the Middle East influence to that. And you were talking about you know, the first market you launched being Lebanon. But going into North Africa a little bit, can you talk a little bit more about what you see there in terms of the ecosystem, the economies, the opportunities, uh, maybe some of the, the localizations that, that are unique? Yeah, it's interesting because that's when I launched Lebanon and then my title was like, you know, the head of expansion in the Middle East and North Africa. So it got looped in and does often with the Middle East in terms of like cultural similarities. But when I started to work on the Maghreb in particular and starting with Morocco, which was our third launch, the third launch I worked on for Endeavor, and we knew we wanted to be there. We had Egypt at the time, but very different. I mean, Egypt and sort of the Maghreb in North Africa in, in terms of cultural and language and is very different market. So it's actually one, if I look back, I'm like, there were so many lessons learned, but so many issues that happened in trying to launch Endeavor Morocco. And I think it is what you talk about that that North Africa piece is, is quite different and needs warrants. Like you can't just put the same people from the Middle East office or you know assume that it's going to be like a South Africa launch. And so the, net, the natural network effects that we sometimes have and the natural pull, we didn't have. We were trying to activate it from nothing. We also didn't have a lot of French speaking countries at that point. I spoke French being from Canada, but there weren't a lot of people that spoke French in our network. And so there were also real cultural complexities in terms of, you know, the way that we set up a board normally is we have one governing board and they all sit together and, and even across different generations. And, you know, they were comfortable doing that or success levels, if you will. In Morocco, I really found that hard. There was real, no, we, this person wouldn't sit with that person. There was like a lot of just complexity to go through in terms of how I could set up this governing body. And so I ended up trying to get creative and set up like this dual board structure where we had the founding board who would do certain roles. And then we had an advisory board below them and they would do certain roles. And they each had different sort of sets of commitments and dues that they would pay and, and ways that they would operate. And one managing director that was supposed to manage them both. That ultimately failed. That structure. Morocco is still around. And I'm glad we were there early because you know, I think just now we're starting to see the winds of change and it's, we're starting to select some very interesting founders 
But that dual board structure, overly complex, trying to solve for some of the complexities in the market by making something more complex was like the wrong way to go about it. I should have stuck with, look, there is a particular way we know this works, even if it takes us a little bit longer the idea to slow down to speed up would have been better. There were a lot more nuances there. And I think trying to operate and do it quickly, I was also pregnant. And so I was trying to get it done. And the other piece of learning from that was, look, I pulled myself out too early. I remember getting advice early on from Jacqueline Novogratz, who funds, who is the head of Acumen Fund, that just said, like, people give to people. People make commitments to people. They make it to organizations. They get passionate about missions, yes, but people ultimately commit to people. And so if you pull yourself, you know, if you're a head of expansion or you've, you've worked on a particular market and you pull yourself out of that equation too quickly and slot in other people, I think some of that, that they've committed to you or that they trust you can be lost. Looking back, it actually changed the way that we structure expansion at Endeavor where we go a bit more downstream now. So it's not like expansion sets up the office, hires the managing director, and then you don't see them again for those first few years, really important to be part of those board meetings, to be part of that selection process and to really help that office come online. And ultimately show the people that, that what you committed to and, and really sold them on is going to come to play. It takes time, but it will happen. It reminds us a little bit of conversation we had with Catherine Himes, former executive from Slack, in this idea of launching and leaving and the amount of commitment you need to show that, you know, not, not only to even reach success, because it often takes longer than you think, but also the perception within that market that you're truly committed out of curiosity, you were talking about the, the complex boards and other things. Was that the, the normal process and, and how things are set up with Endeavor? Or is that, was that unique to Morocco? And, and then along those lines, what we label as localization discovery, where you go into a market and you actually uncover what localizations are needed to be successful. So was that sort of the, the normal thing that maybe is the basis in a lot of new markets? Or was that uncovered during localization discovery and had to be created in its own unique way. Absolutely the latter. Like, and, and in this case, didn't play out for ultimate success for that market. It was overly complex. I think there are certain things and discoveries with localization that you have to follow the threads and like being a really good, gritty, scrappy expansion lead. Like that's part of what I think makes these people successful. So I think you have to try that. But if I think back and it's only on reflection that you can say this, that there are core elements of our model that work really well for a reason. And if you try to over-engineer or make it too complex for the market, we might lose that thread of like why this works because it is one endeavor all around the world. And so it's not that everything has to be exactly the same, but like one governing board and not getting too complex and fancy with that is just good board learning in general. But I was trying to get creative and match kind of what I was hearing and I was, it was my second launch too. And so what I was hearing from people that I wanted to work with, I was then trying to put into play into structure and it just made it, it ultimately wasn't going to work. It was just too many voices in the room, too complex, not clear. And really the job from day one is to start selecting entrepreneurs. And so we just had too many voices then in it and ultimately lost some great people that I think if we'd been more clear about what we do and why we have to do it this way, because it is that thread of one endeavor might've taken us longer but ultimately might have led to a faster start. And we're there now with Morocco. And so it's great that we stuck it out and we stayed early. And But it did have some fraught years. This actually reminds us of a quick comment, a, something that Jan Van Kasteren from uh, formerly of, of Flexport talked about, about this notion of arbitrary uniqueness. And sometimes you, you kind of feel like it needs to be unique and you throw in this extra complexity that maybe isn't the best strategy. You only realize in hindsight too, because it's time you feel like you're brilliant. Like what I solved for. 
you talked a little bit about being pregnant at the time. And so wanted to talk a little bit more about balancing family with leading an international career and in particular expansion, because that requires obviously a lot of travel. Having that balancing act is really, really difficult. Obviously, Aaron and I, uh, we travel a lot for our work pre-pandemic and probably will also post-pandemic and go and do, do speeches and you know expansion and so forth. And so wanted to maybe kind of maybe get your perspective a little bit on this topic, because obviously you're a mom and you have to go do these launches in different countries. How do you balance that yourself? How do you put up guardrails as well? So at the same time, also can be that mom that obviously takes mm-hmm. care of your beautiful kids and so forth. How do you balance and uh, how do you balance like work and at the same time also family? And I certainly don't have all the answers here, but I wanted to pass on some advice if you'll allow that I got when I was sort of debating how to do all this stuff. And even early on when I was thinking about starting a family, I thought I'd have to leave Endeavor. So I was, you know, director of expansion working on the Middle East and North Africa. And I had a friend at the time that gave really good advice. She was like, Joanne, I know you, it's never going to be perfect. You're never going to line up all the ducks in a row. If you want to start a family, just start it and it will work itself out. And I'm glad she said that because I really was trying to like, just get it to the absolute perfect spot to start a family. And then later when the opportunity came up to to take on the global head of expansion role, and I I had so many sleepless nights. I was like, how am I going to do this? My husband has a a full-time job as well. and, And sometimes even has to travel. And so I had a great friend, another female colleague, she'd worked at Goldman Sachs, done a ton of travel. And she said, well, she had this rule where it was like a three night away from home rule, home by Friday dinner, stuck to it. And I thought I can I could do that. This idea that up until this point, you had to go into market for five days for two weeks, that, that it would take that long. I was like, that resonated with me. And so, you know, I famously, I think made the team crazy because I did like, you know, 72 hours there and back in Jakarta. But I've stuck to that. And and so my kids come to expect that. And then the minute you get home, I mean, you know, with kids, like there's no room for navel gazing. Like they get you right back into it. So I think some of the most efficient, maybe I'm going on a limb here, but certainly my efficiency improved when I became a mom by a long shot. And so I was able to kind of accomplish the same things in a, in a shorter period of time and still meet my expectation of, of being a mom. But the way that my mom infused in me that like sense of like the world is something. It's why I love what I do so much and, and don't want to stop doing it, even if it means some nights away, missing some things, which I think any parent that travels and works full time, it happens. And I think also, especially when it comes to kids, you know, having consistency when you lead an international career is important, right? They know you come home by Friday and, yes. you know, on specific days. So they actually know that you're, you're returning as well. It seems like you're, you're leaving them all the time, but they know you're going to be there at a certain period of the week and so forth, right? So I think that's important for kids. One thing that you had talked about when you were younger are these cottage debates that occurred amongst your family yeah. and, and, and a lot of the experiences you had because of your, your mother. And I think you'd mentioned your aunt working in, in Indonesia as well. How are you instilling that or plan to instill that type of mindset within your kids? I think for me, it's simple at this point. I mean, I have a five and an eight-year-old. So the wanting to, and especially with the pandemic over the last two years, like wanting to get them out of America and even Canada, North America, as much as I maybe would have liked hasn't, hasn't happened. And I still think they're young enough that I have to be careful not to assume that they're going to take in what I want them to. And so for me, it's more kind of what I think my mom did for me of just infusing the stories 
and not, you know, and, and, and really not being afraid to like, say, look, here's a particular situation that happened. I talked to them a lot about the time I was launching Endeavor Saudi Arabia. I talk about the markets I'm working on. I've talked a lot about Pakistan lately. And I mean, at a kid level, I mean, again, they're five and eight. And I'm not talking about like political turmoil or things like that, but just about the real, the people I'm meeting and the entrepreneurs. And so you kind of realize you're doing a decent job when then your, your kid, the eight-year-old in particular, kind of mimics it back to you. Like, oh, mom helps entrepreneurs around the world, helps them grow in places like Pakistan, you know, and he's like naming these countries. And I think, okay, I'm, I'm doing something right. We'll continue on this path. But I want his view, especially living in America, to be global early on. Because I think it is easy when you're in a big market to just go coast to coast and, and there's so many things to explore and so many great entrepreneurs and founders here. I want him to be thinking um, global. And I think the way to do that, either imaginary or actually physically traveling, is, is to, to talk about and be kind of mentally in those other markets. I think this is a great point. And my, my kids are a little younger than yours, but, but it doesn't have to be some elaborate <laughs> vacation trip somewhere. Just like you said, even the, the, the stories. Uh, what, one thing I like to do is we have a a map of the world on the wall. And uh, it's, it's kind of like cool wood map that, uh, that I like. But uh, anytime a, a conversation comes up about someplace somewhere else, we actually like go to the map and we're like, you know, this is where this is. We're over here. And just, you know, showing that it, it, things are not just within the, the city or state or country. That, that We have the same map in multiple yeah. places. That's an interesting question to ask expansion people. It's like, I wonder how many people have and how many maps we have throughout our house of like the ones you can actually put stuff on the, cause yeah, we're, we're all like secretly obsessed with the, the map. I, I, I have this other one with this, like a, you take like a, a quarter or a coin and you scratch out the map of, of the countries you've been to. So it like, uh, it has like a little gold film on it that you scratch off like a scratcher right. from the lottery. And <laughs> well, I have the push pin version of that. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. So I think you were saying Lebanon was the 16th market. That, uh, 11th. Or 11th, excuse me. 11th. Yeah. Now, now Endeavor's at 40. Talk a little bit about that growth journey for the company in going from, you know, obviously 11 is a lot of markets already. So it's not like it's, it was only one market, but there's still a lot of growth and changes and things that have happened and, and you know, more filling in different regions in that process. So to talk a little bit about that growth path. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about like the network effect at Endeavor and Pull, and it really does matter for what we do. And also to keep this very unique culture strong, which is why I think Endeavor has been successful. And so the way that we thought about expansion from kind of that beginning when I started, we were really predominantly Latin America before that, before I joined. And we had South Africa and we had Egypt, we were predominantly Latin America. And so what the next kind of decade looked like was really building out those network effects in different regions around the world. So the Middle East, North Africa. And, you know, at the time, I remember talking about, look, there will be companies, founders that will cross multiple markets. There weren't as many then. And then, you know, then there was something like Kareem, which is an Endeavor company we're so proud of that exited to Uber a couple of years ago. And that really did kind of become this incredible success story for the region. And then kind of doing that in Southeast Asia and realizing in Africa, in terms of Nigeria and Kenya, that you can kind of create that thread. And then even through our US markets, so launching between the coasts intentionally. And so that kind of building out of expansion for Endeavor has been a lot about kind of how we leverage that pull and network effects as we go to keep the culture of what we do and what we're trying to do really strong. And I think it's ultimately been very successful because again, back to this, like the what's changed you know, in the last decade is that peer-to-peer connections have become so powerful. It's partly just because now we're 25 years in and some of those early founders are so incredibly successful. 
and they want to connect increasingly with each other. So the network has just continued to strengthen. And I think that ultimately strengthens the offices, of course, but expansion. And one example is one of those Kareem co-founders, Mudas Arsheka, is Pakistani. And so Pakistan's a really complex market, especially to try to do during a pandemic when you can't travel there. And But because he was the champion and he was kind of, I was able to build trust so much faster and sort of know where to go, where not to go, you know, who we should get involved. And so that's that network effect, pull effect in action, you know, for Endeavor. And that's, I think, why we've been able to expand where we have. And I wouldn't say we've done it quickly. I mean, compared to like, you know, I remember talking to someone at Spotify, like, you know, the, the tech companies go so much faster. But what we set up on the ground in terms of its own legal structure, decentralized, a governing body, a managing director and team that ultimately roll the model, I think it takes sometimes a little bit longer to get right. You talked a little bit about Kareem in Middle East. And obviously, Endeavor has been you know, founded since 2010. When was Endeavor founded? In 2010, 2009? 1997. I joined in 2010. Oh, 1990. Sorry about that. 1997. Yeah. So that's a long time ago. And, and obviously, a lot of things have changed in terms of entrepreneurial development, economic development, emerging markets coming up, a lot of innovation happening around the world. And so the way in which companies have to expand has changed a lot, right? We often kind of pick a little bit on Uber when it comes to expansion in the early days, but there are a lot about forcing the model through different municipalities and countries and asking for forgiveness later. And so they were trying to force their way through different nation, you know, economies and countries and expanding there but then often faced a lot of challenges from a regulatory perspective, obviously. So a lot of their expansions, at least their expansion strategy in some markets changed a little bit, right? Going into Middle East, difficult as well, but maybe looking more towards acquisitions and buying local companies. How do you see, one, companies have to view expansion differently compared to then, instead of that company way of doing things, but more the local way of doing things? And how do you also see you know, companies looking at more at an acquisition model as well when it comes to expansion? It's interesting. I mean, I think the idea that you can think about it a little bit more globally now, especially in terms of that acquisition piece, is true. And a pandemic has driven this too, that like a lot of these conversations can be happening. I mean, I was talking to a Canadian company that was acquiring a Brazilian company and they'd never like gone, met, but like a lot of this stuff was just happening virtually. So I think it like just expanded your pie of how you could think about expansion. Whereas in the early days, it would be, you'd be a Latin American company from Argentina thinking more about how to expand throughout Latin America. And that was like a really big and hard thing to do. And there are cultural complexities in that. And some still, I think, start that way. And a lot of times what we'll hear a panel from smart panelists is they will encourage the founders to focus in more on the home market or home region first, like win that market, do more there, as opposed to quickly deciding like you're going to go somewhere else. Or if you're going to do that, doing it really intentionally. But I do think from an acquisition standpoint, it's just opened up a lot more doors. And Endeavor's network is one piece of that. I mean, we can connect peers really around the world and even in, in similar sectors that may, that may have real opportunity. I think that may play out more and more interestingly, and maybe it's a sidebar, but I think that I wonder what's going to happen with expansion kind of in the next, like if it's going to slow a little bit, because for the type of companies that we work, if venture dollars drive a lot of that expansion traditionally and like team building if those are slowing down a little bit or like there's more focus on efficiency in the next year, you know, if some have gotten a bit over their skis, you know, to use that expression, but, you know, is that going to slow expansion in the short term and ultimately pit back up, but, or kind of drive a little bit more of thoughtfulness around where to go and where fits the business model best. Cause I guess back to the endeavor point too, we've oftentimes thought about 
you know, bigger markets like India and tried it a few different ways and times. And it ultimately wasn't successful, I think, for us to be in markets where it fit our business model better, like Vietnam and Indonesia or Morocco, be there early, Saudi Arabia, and has led to much more success than trying to bite off some of the bigger ones. I think there's also a tendency for, for a lot of companies to kind of think about those big markets. They're the first ones to go to. And it's interesting if you kind of compare with a company like Zipline, that's, you know, they raised a couple of hundred million dollars in, in Silicon Valley, but they actually picked Wanda as the initial market, just because the regulatory environment was much more allowing for that business model. It's a medical uh, delivery drone company. And also the infrastructure is not there to transport that type of medical supplies. And so and with Spotify, as an example, they didn't go to the U.S. initially. They actually decided to stay in Sweden, but then expand into nearby countries in Scandinavia because, again, the regulatory environment was much more aligned for that business model to happen as well. So it, it's not always about that biggest market to go to. And it's not always you know, about that, you know, the market that is most similar to you culturally or linguistically either. So you really have to think about from a business model perspective and obviously the regulatory environment as well uh, and how that impacts the, the company. Anyways, I want to ask you uh, one question and you talk a lot about the network of Endeavor, which is obviously very pivotal to the business because you're you know, able to really connect people from across the world. What is the moment that you're most proud of in connecting a founder with a founder that led to a, you know, a, a success story? I mean, there's, prob- there's probably a lot. And sometimes they sort of happen behind the scenes and you're kind of thinking. But one recently that just the success story is around selecting our first company out of Pakistan, right. just because it's a relevant top line. But we, we, there's a great B2B marketplace company in Pakistan called Bazaar, and they're doing great things. And we knew we wanted to work with these two very impressive founders. And you know, because the pandemic has allowed us to do virtual panels, local selection panels, we were able to choose people from all around the world. And so being able to put them in touch with the CFO at Mercado Libre to actually be on their panel to give them advice and help us evaluate if they were the right company ultimately to choose to be the first Endeavor Entrepreneurs for Pakistan. And then combining that with like a great ed tech founder and investor who's actually Pakistani, but between the Bay Area. And so creating this sort of really wonderful local panel, intimate discussion, really quickly, trust-based. I mean, that's kind of the brilliance of the trust-based network. And they come on and, and you know, it hasn't necessarily led to anything huge yet, although they have become the first Endeavor Entrepreneurs for Pakistan. But just this idea that like the the founder to founder, you know, market to market connections can be so powerful. And, you know, this network that we've kept strong, we're kind of in a unique position to sometimes make some of those. A lot of times it will be the founders telling us like, look, we really want to connect here. And Bazaar has access to a lot of the right people and great investors in Pakistan and in, in some great advisors and again, investors in the United States. But I think to access Mercado Libre at that level at that way was not something they, they maybe had access to. And so being able to connect them there was really, you know, you feel good when you're able to do that and like, oh, this is great. Really took away some advice and it has to be the right founders too. I mean, they're so open to it, which is wonderful. I think what you're talking about is just this great blending of two core concepts that we kept seeing in in our research for Global Class around the importance of trust, but also this importance of community as well. And obviously, (laughs) getting trust is is the driver behind the the power of that community. The way you describe that, I think, is just really an an awesome superpower that that, uh, Endeavor has developed over time. What a transition to looking more toward the future and maybe some advice that, that you have for, um, for, for founders, for executives who are, are building global businesses. You were talking a little bit about maybe the short term and how 
expansion may be slowing because of funding and maybe more focus on uh, efficiency. But you know, when, when we look at a post-pandemic world with expanding to other countries, you know, how do you see that being different than before the pandemic? What do you think some of the keys to success will be for companies that do want to build at global scale? You know, and if globalization goes, you know, sort of a little bit fraught in the short term, ultimately wins out. I mean, obviously we are biased in what we do and what we love. But one stat that I think is really interesting that Endeavor thinks about a lot is obviously we like working with a lot of unicorns. And our belief is you can have these billion dollar plus privately led companies in multiple markets around the world. But back in 2013, when the term was coined, the unicorn term, there were 39 unicorns and they were all in the United States. I assume many of them were probably in the Bay Area too, but they were all in the United States. And so then if you fast forward to today, you've got more over 800 of them. And what I find really interesting and what excites me is that if you take out India and China and the United States, you've got about 26% that are in you know, what we would call rest of world. And so these are you know, these unicorns and some decacorns coming out of the regions and the markets where we got excited about early and initially, and I think are shining a light in a way on for many of these investors in our national community, people that founders that are thinking about where to expand in a unique way. And so ultimately that's not going away. And so, you know, maybe unicorn is an overused term, but I think that idea that like you can grow these incredibly successful companies from multiple places around the world will just continue to connect this community of founder to founder, private sector leaders, which which will ultimately have huge impact. I mean, you're really growing the country's future leaders in many ways. Going back to the model that you outlined for Endeavor, is a great example of one of the core concepts that we talk about is this balancing between needing to localize and complexity. And, and you were talking about certain things that are localized in that market and give that team the freedom to change versus certain things that make sense to be centralized. When you think about that, when you give advice to entrepreneurs and business leaders who are doing the same, what pieces of advice do you have for how to approach that, for how to balance between mm-hmm. that, that dance you have to do between needing to be able to localize so that it gets adoption and, and to the point we made before, trust in that market, but centralized in ways to allow for that scalability so you can actually operate a, a company across 40 plus markets in a cohesive way that they can scale. Yeah. And you make me think of two things when you say that, but I mean, the first is really, and our president talks about this, but this, cause he's come from the managing director rank. So he was like running Endeavor in Spain, but this idea of like servant leadership or participatory leadership. I mean, if you think of like Endeavor Global as kind of the central resource, but really existing only to serve everybody. And the other thing that's driven, I think this thread through and this culture that's become so strong, we have, um, you know, an incredible founder, co-founder and Chris Zook, who writes a lot and writes a lot of books. He's ex-Bain and is a panelist for us. We're lucky to have him in the network. He has a great book called The Founder's Mentality. And he talks a lot about kind of that frontline obsession and having all, all of your employees equally feel ownership to drive that speed and scale and responsibility. And I think because of the unique culture she's created, and certainly for those of us like me that have been around 12 years, I do have that owner's mindset, that owner's mentality. And so I, a lot of our offices, I mean, they truly do own what they're doing, but they, they care, they feel that ownership level. And so almost like going beyond autonomy, I mean, it's really kind of, this is theirs to build. And so I think that cultural piece has kind of created this very strong ability to, and it's, and it's shifted in the time you'd asked previously about like what I'd seen shift from like when I joined, you know, 12 years ago to now. And there is a much better integration 
trust between like the global and, and the local offices. And I think a lot of that too is like, it's oftentimes not global to local, it's local to local. There's so much knowledge sharing. I mean, you talked about, you interviewed Bianca Martinelli, who is an old, old colleague of mine and, and love her. And she came from the Brazil office to global. And one of the, the people that works with me on the expansion team came from the Michigan office to global. I mean, there's, and then we're cross-pollinating in Argentina, just a woman from Argentina went to Ireland and there's countless examples. And we really are starting to encourage that more and more. And so when you take those like owners from one market and they go to another market, you're getting this really interesting thread through that helps knowledge sharing across market to market versus just always from the, the sort of central. And then that's how ideas bubble up too over time. And we end up shifting to new great, great aspects of the model. It's really interesting. Uh, that executes uh, uh, well into my next question before we dive into the three pieces of advice, which we always have at the end of, of the podcast. When you look at evaluating founders at Endeavor, I'm curious to understand beyond like looking for grit, you know, drive in experts in building products, the ability to pivot as founders as soon as you kind of discover new things from customers and so forth, to pivot the business model, the technology, et cetera. Are there any uh, criteria in terms of culture when you screen founders looking maybe at the team as sort of having international experiences? And the reason why I'm asking this is because in the book, we coined a new term called an entrepreneur as an international, really an individual that has that agile mindset. And then what we call a company mindset, the ability to navigate bureaucracy and build coalition to bind within an organization. But in particular, the piece about global mindedness, cultural consciousness, the ability to have empathy of other cultures. And so when we look at maybe, you know, building the companies of the future, to Aaron's point a little bit earlier, we'll look maybe at companies building much more of a distributed model, right? And so are you guys going to change those criteria a little bit, or have you always screened for these like cultural factors as well in founders and in them having much more of a global mindset instead of that local mindset building for the local market? You mean the founders that we ultimately select to become Endeavor entrepreneurs, right? Not yes, our main yes. directors? Okay. Yeah. It kind of answers itself through the model. Like if you think about it, if you're an incredibly busy founder growing a business, and you guys have spoken to many of them on this podcast. Why would you, and there are no shortage now globally. I think when we started 25 years ago, maybe it was harder to find an incubator or an accelerator, or, you know, but there are a lot of like support organizations for entrepreneurs. So really early on in the way I talk to founders, whether they're in Canada or Ireland or Nigeria or Pakistan about Endeavor is like, yes, this trust-based network of incredible peers that's global. And so I think through the process, those founders, that mentality is they care about that. And maybe it's because they're growing a global business today. And they're leaving Pakistan, they're looking at five other markets and they want those warm intros. But a lot of times it's just that they want that peer set of the global mindset. They recognize how beneficial that is to talk to somebody in Indonesia that's building something similar to what you're building in Pakistan. And so that's sort of screened through the process, you know, and we have a great five, you know, step process to become an Endeavor entrepreneur and not to kind of, you know, um, make it so time consuming for them, but to really sort of tease out is this the right founding team that we want to back with the right company they're growing? Because then once you're an Endeavor entrepreneur, we say you're always an Endeavor entrepreneur. You, you just end up switching to the other side of the table and being the panelist and, and being the board member for us and, and investing in our fund. And, and so it's really important who you bring into the network that they care about that global piece because it's so much of our DNA. That makes total sense. So in, in reality, you look for entrepreneurs, not entrepreneurs, I guess. Yeah. Said jokingly, of course. I'm still learning the term. I'm going to read the book. Right. 
<laughs> exactly. Of course, because it seems really interesting, this concept. But yes, we are. Cool. We want to move into the last piece of the podcast, which is the three pieces of advice, right? Uh, where you answer three short form questions um, and just like, you know, go on a whim, I guess. Uh, and so are you ready for the last piece here of the podcast? Yeah, let's do it. Beautiful. So imagine, obviously, you're going down from the elevator and have to answer them very quickly. So uh, I'll start with the first. What one piece of advice would you give to someone interested in building a career around in, in the national business? So I would say the ivory tower will only get you so far and uh, build on the ground practical international experience and build it early and build it often. What one piece of advice do you have for a business leader expanding a business to new markets? So focus in on the right partners and build trust quickly. It's not that it has to be a lot of partners who are the right ones. Build trust quickly and don't overpromise. What one piece of advice would you have for your younger self? I think a few people would probably have this advice for their younger self, but I really wish I hadn't taken the setback so personally. I would be, you know, I remember at the end of long days in Lebanon at the beginning, like ruminating in hotel rooms solo in a foreign market about how I could have done something particularly different to not get that no or not have that setback happen as opposed to really quickly moving on, you know, to the next opportunity. Uh, Joanna, you've talked about so many great things during our conversation from going back to the beginning about choosing emerging markets deliberately and how that was sort of built into the DNA of Endeavor and, and created some competitive advantages and, you know, what, what the organization is today taking this decentralized approach, allowing different local teams to be able to localize, but also having the playbooks and, and structures you know, to be able to support that and, and ultimately fostering that um, founders or owners mentality that you were talking about, uh, about being a global business leader and a mom, how it actually can help your efficiencies and, and other things about building that, that global mindset within, within the rest of the family, the network effects and community building and, and the importance of trust within that. Knowledge sharing, not being just you know headquarters to local, but local to local, and, and ultimately uh, you know servant leadership, and and again back to that owner's mentality. It's uh, so many great pieces of advice. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. We wish you best of luck in the next forty markets that Endeavor goes into. And thanks again for sharing your story and your insights. It was fun. I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to reading the book. <laughs>